Matthew 13 this morning, if you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 13, one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. I love intrigue and I love hard to understand passages and I love uh, just to see what God wants to say through the word of God and I love parables as well. Title of this message, Something Went Really Wrong. And as we read the parables this morning that we're going to cover, I think you'll agree that with some of the parables that we're going to read, the title of the message doesn't seem to fit. Because the normal and the typical interpretation of these parables seems to indicate that, wow, things are really happening. Things are on the upswing. It's really good what's going on in this thing called the kingdom of heaven. But uh, the context speaks otherwise, and we'll see that as we go through. Let's read the entire passage together, beginning with verse 24. Jesus is speaking, and it says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. And remember that this is a brand new way of teaching for Jesus. Up until chapter 13 of Matthew, he had never taught the multitudes in parables. It wasn't an atypical kind of teaching generally. Others taught in parables. But for Jesus, this was the first time that he began to teach in parables. And as we saw last week, he was deliberately obscuring the truth from the unresponsive so that they would seek out the answers and learn to become disciples. That's what parables were about. 
we can see here in verses 34 and 35 that he was speaking when he spoke to the multitudes in parables. That was his new methodology. He was trying to awaken them out of their spiritual slumber and stir them up out of their spiritual lethargy. So he spoke to them in parables because they needed to get curious. They needed to quit being so passive in the way they were processing spiritual truth. They were hearing the things that Jesus said and they were just passive about them, thinking that they understood them when they really didn't even have a clue as to what Jesus was talking about. So he spoke to them in a way that they really wouldn't understand what he was saying. So that they would have to say to themselves, Huh? And then say to him, perhaps, or one of his disciples, What meaneth this? And then they could come to understanding. And once they start asking, What meaneth this? And once they start saying, Huh? They start entering into the whole area of being a disciple because that's what a disciple does a disciple's curious a disciple wants to learn a disciple wants to grow they were in spiritual danger and they didn't know it so he spoke to them in parables and the first of the parables that he spoke to them in this section that we're reading this morning is the parable of the wheat and the tares and it's a simple story as he shares it, but the shocking thing about the story is that he said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and while everyone slept, someone else came and sowed the tares, the darnel. They look, they look exactly like the real wheat until it gets closer and closer to the harvest, and even the experts can't tell the difference between the darnel or the tares and the wheat until it actually gets close to the time of the harvest, and then they can tell. And so, how could this be? How could there be the sowing of tares in the field along with the sowing of the wheat, and how could this be descriptive of the kingdom of heaven. Put yourself in the, sh in the sandals of the multitude here. What were they hearing? They were hearing this parable. They were hearing Jesus say, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as he tells the parable, he says, they're going to both grow together in the time of the harvest, and then the reapers are going to come, gather out everything that offends, and then uh, they'll be burned in the fire and the wheat will be gathered into my barn. He doesn't explain it to them. He doesn't tell them what it means. He doesn't give them any hint. All they know is that something is happening within what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, which is not what they expected. They expected the kingdom of heaven to triumph. Once the Messiah was in place, that was all they needed to know. The Messiah is in place. Things are on the upswing now. Evil is going to be conquered. Evil is going to be destroyed. It's going to get, the, the righteous are going to grow larger and larger and more influential and more influential and evil is becoming diminished and diminished and it's going to be that way. But what you're telling us in this story is that in the kingdom, there's something very unexpected that's going to happen. This would be shocking to them. The question in verse 27 in the parable, the servants say, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Yeah, we sowed good seed in the field, he would say. Well, then how then does it have tares? This isn't supposed to happen, not in the Messiah's kingdom. And as Jesus gives the parable, the answer is very simple and straightforward and to the point. How does this field have tares in it? How could this be? Verse 28 is the answer. He said to them, an enemy has done this. That's the answer. It's the work of an enemy. Simple, direct, to the point. Somehow, within the kingdom, an enemy got involved in the development of the kingdom. An enemy got involved, and things started to happen which they didn't expect to happen. 
it seems like the bad seed, the tares, had as much effect within the field as did the real wheat. That's the explanation. An enemy has done this. Well, let's break it down a little bit and get Jesus' interpretation. He interprets the parable. He explains it to the disciples. Note that it was to the disciples that he gives the explanation. Verses 36 through 43. Jesus sent the multitudes away. He went into the house. His disciples came to him and asked for an explanation, and he gives it to them. So let's look at the explanation. The first phrase that we see is that a man sowed good seed. Who is this man? Jesus defines the man. The man is the son of man. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, a.k.a. the Messiah, a.k.a. Jesus himself. Jesus himself, the Messiah, sowed the good seed. Now, the next thing that we, show, we find in the parable is that he sowed the good seed in his field. What's the field? The field, Jesus says, in verse 38, is the world. And so, the Son of Man sowed good seed into the world. And then we look at what is the meaning of the good seed. Now, we typically think of the seed as being the word of God, right? Because this is the meaning of the seed in the parable of the soils previously given. But not in this case. The meaning of the good seed is, in verse 38, the sons of the kingdom. So put it all together. The son of man, the Messiah, sows the sons of the kingdom into the world. The Son of Man, the Messiah, sows the seed who are the sons of the kingdom into the world. He sows human beings, believers, into the world. That's the sowing that's going on here. The next phrase that we find in the parable is that there were tares that had been sown among the wheat. What are the tares representative of? Jesus says in verse 38 again, that the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Now we have the surprising part of the sowing. The Messiah, the Son of Man, is sowing human beings into his, his world. They are the sons of the kingdom. But there's an enemy also who is sowing human beings into the world, and they're the sons of the wicked one. And this is happening simultaneously. It's happening at the same time. True believers are being sown into the world and sons of the wicked one are being sown in, into the world during this thing called the kingdom of heaven, during this age. And again, the description, an enemy has done this. Jesus interprets the enemy in the explanation, verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. He's the one that sowed into the world, the sons of the wicked one. That's what he did. And they are the tares that Jesus is talking about in the parable. The tares, at first, look like wheat. They're sown, the wheat is sown, the rains come, they begin to sprout. Initially, you can't tell the difference. They're the darnel, uh, the genus lolium, according to the Holman's Bible Dictionary. And this is exactly what happened. The enemy sowed the field that had already been sown with wheat. And the enemy was a trespasser. He had no right to the field. He had no right to come into the field. But he did it anyway and full of subtlety, Morgan tells us. He did it while men slept. And he sowed his own people into the world. That's the picture of the parable. And it goes on. The next phrase we find in the telling of the parable, let them both grow together until the harvest. What's the harvest? Jesus interprets it in verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age. The time of the judgment, the time when this age ends and a new age is close at hand. 
And what Jesus is making clear, as Morgan tells us in his excellent commentary, The Parables and Metaphors of Our Lord, Jesus is making it perfectly clear that there would be a long and continuous conflict between these two forces, between the sons of the kingdom sown by Jesus and the sons of the wicked one sown by the devil, and that that would be characteristic of this age. The next phrase we see is that the reapers are to be addressed. The reapers are, verse 39, the angels. So who are these reapers? They're angels. And their instructions, first gather the tares and burn them. Jesus' explanation, the offensive things that are in Christ's kingdom will be gathered out, these tares, and cast into the firmest of fire, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the overall picture, the sowing comes from Messiah. He sows the sons of the kingdom. Another false sowing takes place. The devil, he sows sons of the wicked one. They both grow together until the harvest time. God sends the angels into the world, and he gathers out the tares, and he binds them in bundles, throws them into a furnace of fire to be burned, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, eventually God wins because he sends forth his messengers, his angels, to root out all traces of evil that are in the world and within his kingdom. Jesus does this. Jesus is the one. God the Father is the one who roots out through the angels these traces of evil, these evil people. He does it. And he does it intentionally. He does it at the end of the age. That's when the conflict ends. It's not something human beings do. It's something that only God himself does. And then the last phrase in the parable, gather the wheat into my barn. Gather the wheat into my barn. After the tares are gathered and bound and burned, the wheat are to be gathered into his barn. So what's the meaning there? In verse 43, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So the barn is the kingdom of the father, And the wheat are the righteous who are going to be shining forth like the sun in those days. In other words, there's going to be a calling out of the world of this evil that has been allowed to exist, coexist with the righteous. And after this calling out and after the judgment, then the reward of the righteous and there is going to be a wonderful, wonderful blessing in that kingdom of the Father which will last forever. So reading the parable and looking at Jesus' interpretation, in my mind it brings a question. And the question is, is the world that we live in, since Jesus came particularly, is the world that we live in since Jesus came, is it getting better or is it getting worse? Is it becoming more full of goodness or more full of evil? And the answer is, the world is indeed getting better every day. And the world is indeed getting worse every day. The answer is both. Both happen. Because there are sons of the kingdom and there are sons of the wicked one in this conflict. Evil and good continue to grow until the harvest until the judgment comes. And we don't know exactly when that's going to be. So we go back to the idea of the sowing of the tares among the wheat in the kingdom. What does that look like? How has that unfolded over the ages? What's been the manifestation of it? Well, in biblical history... We can see it. That is history that's contained within the pages of Scripture. Not soon after the gospel began to spread out of Jerusalem, there showed up a man named Simon Magus, a.k.a. Simon the Sorcerer, there in Samaria. Remember him? He was baptized under the preaching of Philip. He looked like a believer. 
To many, he smelled like a believer. All the indications that he was the real deal were there in Simon Magus until his heart was revealed in his desire to buy from the Lord the ability to lay hands on people so that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, through a word of knowledge, nailed Simon Magus and said, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Pray to God that perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. Because I can see that you are bound in iniquity and poisoned by bitterness. He was a tear that had been sown among the wheat. And it took a supernatural manifestation of the word of knowledge through Peter to expose this false believer. Later on in the development of the early church, the apostolic church, we had the Judaizers. They were a different breed. They were the ones that came in and corrupted the gospel message. They said, oh, it's great to believe in Jesus as Messiah, and we do too. And we believe the Old Testament just like you do, and we believe the message of Jesus and the preaching of John the Baptist just like you do. But the gospel you've been preaching is deficient. It doesn't go far enough. In addition to believing in the grace of God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, the Judaizer said, you've got to also add circumcision to your requirements for salvation and also keep the law of Moses. They were adding to the gospel. And Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, he said, the gospel that these men are preaching isn't a gospel at all. It's another gospel of an entirely different kind, and it's not even to be called good news, gospel, because it's not a gospel. But that influence of the legalists, the Judaizers, came in and tried to pervert and change the truth. But at first, it looked like they were the real deal. Then there were the false apostles in Corinth that Paul had to contend with in his ministry to the Corinthian church. Jude mentions the men that creep in unawares without even knowing who they were. And they changed the gospel by saying that the grace of God gives us permission to do whatever we want and live however we want. And they even denied the only Lord God that bought them. That was Jude's description of some of the tares, these individuals that had been sown in among the sons of the kingdom. And then Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. He said there would be men that would rise up from among you and draw away the disciples after themselves. There would be false believers there that Paul told the elders to look out for. And then Jesus mentioned in his message to the church at Thyatira that there was this problem. They had allowed the woman Jezebel to teach doctrine within their church and to seduce Christ's servants to commit spiritual fornication and to worship other gods. Again, you know, it was a movement that was happening from within the ranks. Evil contesting against good. Then you go into post-biblical history, and we see the rise of heresies. And they began to rise quickly. Marcion, Origen, Arius, and it goes on and on until the time came where the Protestant Reformation began to change some of those heresies. So during the age of the kingdom, wheat and tares existing simultaneously... To get to an application of all of this, what does this mean for us today? I think the first application is stop trying to separate tares from the wheat. That's what Jesus said to do. Stop trying. You may not be able to recognize. Because there are tares among the wheat. A lot of times people will ask me, do you think 
Roman Catholics or Christians? Do you think they're saved? And my answer is, I believe that there are those among the Roman Catholic Church and churches that are definitely saved. I think another question might be, do you think Calvary Chapelites are saved? I would say there are some among those that gather at Calvary Chapels that are indeed saved. But there are some that are not. And that's the same that exists pretty much in any group because the wheat have also sown among them the tares, the sons of the wicked one. And the best thing to do is just stay faithful to the truth of Scripture and stay faithful to who Jesus is. You know, there are essentials of Christianity that are non-negotiables. If someone tells me, particularly if they're a minister, they represent themselves as being a representative of Christ, and they tell me, you know, I'm, 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 I serve the Lord as you do, and I start asking them questions, I want to know the answer to s- some basic, fundamental doctrines to see where they stand on it, to see if I can throw in my lot with them. I want to know, what's their position concerning the scripture? What do they believe the Bible is? Is this just a book that is written by man? Or is this something that was breathed out by God as he influenced human authors? Did man write or did God write it, ultimately? Is it without error, or does it contain errors? Is it inspired by God? What's your view of the Bible? That's to me, that's a, that's a hill to die on. Somebody says, well, I question the scripture. I don't know that it's really fully inspired. I don't know that it's without error in the original manuscripts. I doubt these things yet, and I don't even teach them. In fact, I teach otherwise. Well, I'm sorry, my fellowship with that person has just ended. I'll still love them as a human being, but I can't join with them and pretend like we're actually pulling on the same harness, wearing the same yoke, because we're not. I want to know, who is Jesus Christ? Is he the Son of God? Is he God the Son? Was he born of a virgin supernaturally, as the New Testament says he was? Did he live a sinless life? Did he die upon a Roman cross and substitute himself for us, dying for the sins of the whole world? Did he rise from the dead three days later, not just spiritually, but physically? Was it a physical, full resurrection from the dead? Did he ascend into heaven, and is he exalted to the right hand of the Father, and is he glorified now in the presence of God, and is he coming again to judge the living and the dead? Who is Jesus? If they're deficient in these answers, and they say, well, Jesus was a tremendous teacher and a tremendous moral influence, but I reject his claims to be the Son of God, my connection with that person yoked together with him or her as a believer, has just ended. Oh, I'll still love them as a human being, pray for them, but they need to get saved. So, yeah, stop trying to separate tares from wheat and focus on the essentials in the process. And there are others as well. The deity of the Holy Spirit, the personality of the Holy Spirit, the fatherhood of God, Salvation by grace through faith alone. These are the essentials. As Paul lays it out in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Stick close to the word. Stick close to the truth. Not out of paranoia, but out of love for the Lord. Be discerning. But realize that there is going to be evil sown among us who truly do believe. And then finally, the application to me is, Rejoice in hope. Jesus ends the interpretation of the parable by this incredibly and wonderfully hopeful interpretation. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Could any greater words of hope be uttered by the lips of our Lord? 
then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I can't wait to live in a world, to live in a kingdom that is completely free of all evil and unbelief. Yeah, I have to tell you, it bothers me what's going on. It bothers me, the compromise that exists so much of the time regarding the scriptures and regarding Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel and with regard to the need to emphasize the sinfulness of mankind. I mean, there are debates going on today within theological circles as to whether or not Adam was a real historical individual. Hey, listen, get it right. Jesus believed in Adam. Jesus said that he existed and that he was a real historical individual. Okay, well, I can handle Adam. I just, I can't deal with Jonah. Jesus believed in Jonah, that he was a real historical individual. Listen, I'm ready to listen to anybody who has risen from the dead after saying I'm going to be crucified and raise myself up out of that grave. Whatever he says after that, I'm all ears. His word is bond. Why are we debating things like this? Why are people questioning these things? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. As Pastor Dave used to say, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, if you do believe Genesis 1-1, the rest is easy. I agree with him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That ought to settle it. If we serve a God that's that big, then anything else he does is a piece of cake. I love this hope. True believers will one day be wholly separated from evil and unto their father. That's what we have to look forward to. Now we go to a couple of smaller parables, which it's interesting, were spoken to the multitude and about which the disciples did not ask any questions. They wanted to know, explain to us the meaning of the tares in the field. They didn't say, explain to us the meaning of the mustard seed parable. What was that all about? And they didn't say, explain to us the meaning of the leaven that the woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. They didn't ask for an explanation about those things. At least none that's recorded. And I have a theory as to why. I believe they didn't ask because the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares provides the key for the interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven hidden in three measures of meal. And what's the common theme with those three parables? The common theme is that of surprise. Again, put yourself in the sandals of the multitudes. How were they hearing this? They're hearing that within Christ's kingdom, there are two sowings, a sowing of righteous human beings and a sowing of unrighteous human beings, the sons of the devil. Wow, really? And then they hear this parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is actually something that produces a plant or a bush. It doesn't grow into a tree. For the mustard seed to grow into a tree would be an abnormal development of that seed. And any listener, especially any Jewish listener to this, would hear the words, and the birds of the air nest in its branches. They would be having red flashing warning lights in their brain. This is bad. This is bad. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Will Robinson. For those of us that are old enough to know what that's all about. And if you don't know, you're just lost in space. (laughs) I wasn't in my notes. The lights would be going off, the flashing red lights, because birds, they speak of evil influences. I mean, you've got the vultures that feast on carrion. And you've got these birds that are like the crows that we saw yesterday at my mom's place waiting to swoop down on the eggs of the little sparrows. Birds on the high wire, the crows. 
How did Jesus refer to the birds in the first parable in this chapter? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away the word that was sown in their hearts. So is he who received the word by the wayside. The birds were the devil, representatives of the devil, snatching away the word out of the heart of the one who doesn't understand it. Carry that meaning over into this parable as well. Because the birds are evil representations of the enemy, of the devil. The mustard seed grows into something that is unnatural. It grows into something that is a tree for evil influences to nestle and nest in its branches. Again, it fits the context. In other words, in the development of the kingdom, something bad and unexpected is again going to happen as told in the story of the mustard seed. The kingdom is going to begin and something's going to happen to it. An unnatural growth and development of the kingdom is going to take place. And the result is going to be that evil influences find comfortable lodgings within this unnatural development of the kingdom. Now again, rewind the tape back to early history, specifically 4th century history. A man by the name of Constantine becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire. The age of persecution against the church ends with Constantine because he declares that Christianity has now become the religion of the entire Roman Empire. It was now legal and acceptable to be a Christian. But when he did that, he embraced the paganism of Rome and embraced the pagan systems and worship systems of Rome and incorporated it into the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And so what you had developing very quickly from the 4th century on was a very, very corrupted version of Christianity, which you wouldn't even be able to recognize if you walked into it today as being Christianity at all. That led into the period that we call the Dark Ages, eventually morphed into what are called the Middle Ages, and that led to the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, where they finally said enough. Enough of this corruption of Christianity. Enough of this evil being comfortable within this aberrant development of the kingdom. Enough. No, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore. It's by grace alone. It's by faith alone. It's by the word of God alone, the reformer said. And they got back to where they should have been in the beginning had Christianity not experienced an unnatural growth and development under Constantine as it worked itself out through the ages. See, God never intended it for the church to be mixed with the state or political power to be connected to ecclesiastical or religious power. But that's exactly what happened. And you know, the old saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's exactly what happened to the church. Christianity became Christendom. And now we have to explain, those of us that really want to walk with the Lord and defend Christianity, we have to explain things like the Crusades or the Inquisition or the other things that were done in the name of the Lord. But it was Christendom that was doing them. It was the tares that had been sown among the wheat. It was this mustard seed that grew unnaturally into a tree. It's a place where the birds of the air are comfortable to live. 
You see the, the, the tenor, the tone, the mood of Jesus' parable here? Now we go to the next one. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Again, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Shocking to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven? What's leaven a picture of? Well, remember back in the days of the Passover. They had to make sure that all traces of leaven were removed from every single one of their households as they ate that Passover lamb. Why? Because leaven is a picture of sin. It's yeast. It corrupts. It comes into a lump of dough, and it breaks it down through the putrefaction process, and eventually the yeast causes the dough to rise, and so we have what we call leavened bread as opposed to unleavened bread. So leaven has been called a type or is seen as a type or a picture of sin. Jesus warned them about the leaven of hypocrisy. He warned them about the leaven of uh, the love for riches. Paul spoke about the leaven of sin that had come into the church in Corinth. It's a picture of sin. So here you have these listeners, and they're hearing what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. How is the kingdom of heaven like sin? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. Three measures of meal. That goes back to Genesis as well, the book of Genesis. Abraham had his guests, the angel of the Lord and a couple of other angels, and he prepared a nice meal for them, including... Measures of meal, three measures of meal that were turned into loaves of bread that he could feed to his guests. And it it was symbolic. It was, spoke very strongly of fellowship, of sharing, of worship. That's the way Abraham expressed himself to these visitors. He wanted to share with them. He wanted to fellowship with them. He wanted to show respect. Them. And then later in the Levitical law, when the Jews were given the law from Moses, uh, there was the meal or the grain offerings, which were fellowship offerings to fellowship with God. So what's the picture? The picture is, is that there's leaven, which a woman takes, sin, which a woman takes, and she puts it right into the midst of the worship and the fellowship of believers to corrupt it, to corrupt it like leaven and yeast corrupt a lump of dough. That's the picture here. And again, it's a surprising picture because they didn't expect that. That's exactly what we've seen throughout the age. The true nature of worship has been corrupted by sin throughout the age. It's true in our present day And I believe it's going to be increasingly true the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. And after the rapture of the church and when the tribulation period begins, after the days of apostasy have reached their zenith, sin is going to even more corrupt worship as it ought to be. Jesus said, God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, because the Father is seeking such to worship him. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, I fear, I fear for you, that as Satan beguiled Eve, seduced and tricked Eve, through his subtlety and his craftiness, that your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The biblical worship, the worship God has given us, is so simple. It's so pure. It's just human beings that have been touched by grace coming before God's throne and saying, Lord, you've exchanged your life for me that I could have life, now I'm exchanging it and giving it back to you. 
That's what worship is at its core. And the woman took the leaven and hid it in three measures of meal to corrupt that. It's not simple like that anymore. It is in God's kingdom in the way it really is supposed to be. But the woman that did this with the leaven has corrupted it. So again, the same theme exists in all three of these parables. There's the theme of surprise. There's the theme of the existence of evil and evil influences in this age called the age of the kingdom of heaven. We live in an age that is very much like the age of Saul and David. Remember Saul and David? Saul was anointed as king by Samuel the prophet, and he was on the throne. But Saul couldn't handle it. He was weak. He was ungodly. He didn't fear the Lord. And while he was still legally on the throne, the prophet Samuel was sent by God to the house of Jesse. Because the Lord had told Samuel, I have called another king who is a man after my own heart, and he's going to replace Saul. So Samuel went to the household of Jesse, and seven sons of Jesse passed before the prophet, and the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Isn't there another one? Does he have any more sons? Yeah, there's one more, Jesse said. But he's ruddy. He's a young guy. He's out taking care of the flock. Bring him in. That was David. The Lord anointed David as king that day. But he didn't get to serve as king for years. Because Saul was still legally on the throne. And even the Lord had promised, I'm jerking the kingdom from you. David was the anointed king. But David had to wait his day. Now Satan is like Saul. He thinks he's running things because he's got lots of tares that he's sown, lots of sons of the evil one that have been sown into the world, and he thinks that his program is going pretty well. But our David, Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Savior, the conquering king, he's in heaven just biding his time, waiting for the Father's word, and then he's going to come again and judge the living and the dead. That's on its way. He's the real king. He's the real king. John sees him in Revelation chapter 5. And what does John see him as? He sees him as the lion of the tribe of Judah who has prevailed and who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seven seals. The lamb that was slain. That's our king. And Paul tells the believers that he writes to, Actually, he tells Titus, his assisting pastor. He says, looking unto that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look for that. Look for that. Look for that. So, yeah, the things appear as though evil is winning. Nah. Not so much. And in the meantime, how do we live? We live as those who are subjects of the king, serving Jesus, living for him, not living for this world. That makes no sense. As Jim Elliott once said, a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to keep that which he cannot lose. Giving up everything for Jesus, just living for him, that's the right choice to make because our king is coming back. And if you're not sure, hey, you know what? I'm not sure. If I'm a tare or a wheat, I don't know if I'm a son of the kingdom or a son of the enemy. You can be sure. Because the way to become a child of God is simply to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust him for salvation. To say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. You died for me. You rose from the dead. Would you please come into my life and take over? Be my Savior. Be my Lord. 
Someone who says that to him and believes it in their heart and then makes confession of it with their lips, they're saved. Be a son of the kingdom. And things will start to happen in your life. Changes will be apparent to you and to others. Whoa, what happened to him? What happened to her? Jesus must have got a hold of them. Exactly. Maybe that's you this morning. Time for you to make a commitment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the blessed hope that you have put out in front of us. And we also, Lord, freely share the same kind of grief that you experience, Lord, as there's this groaning going on in the world. This seeming prevalence of evil everywhere around us. And it grates on us, Lord. It vexes our souls. But Lord, we thank you so much that in the midst of darkness, light shines brighter. And you have identified true believers as being the light of the world. And now, Lord, strengthen us to live as children of light. For those, Lord, that still need to make a decision and make a commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord, we pray for them this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their eyes to see, open up their ears to be able to hear. We know that there is a spiritual battle going on against their minds and hearts right now. We pray, Lord, that you would bind the enemy and his wicked intentions that they might be free to say yes to the Son of God. And if anyone is here this morning that needs to make that commitment to Jesus and allow him to be your Savior and your Lord, just raise your hand right now where you're you're sitting. I'll have a word of prayer with you. Anyone here this morning ready to make a commitment and say yes to Jesus? Anyone? Lord, just continue to bless your word, however it goes out, to speak to people. In Jesus' name, amen.